Antic Heart, Chapter 15 is angry. I've been summoned to his office and I stumble there as soon as I am dressed. I'm surprised to see that Lucy Carlyle is also there. My lovely Lucy. She looks fresh and cheerful. I guess that unlike me, she has slept well. There are two goblets of wine on the table and some buttery French bread. Hyde gestures me to a seat. He doesn't offer me a drink. I sit down and look him in the eye. What is it you want with me? You know everything I know. Hyde clears his throat. <clears throat> you must understand that the Queen's identification of this pendant changes this situation completely. We are looking for a spy in our network. We had suspected that we would find them in court in Paris. I interrupt. I've started investigating the ladies in the court. I spent yesterday with Lucy Walter. I don't believe that she is a spy, but I've only just started. Hyde waves his hand crossly. But think of this. How is it that a lady you were involved with in England was in possession of a part of the Royal Jewellery Collection? She told me she was given it. So where did it come from? Was it stolen? In which case, the thief had access to the royal jewels. Or was it given freely by a member of the royal family? Either way, there is a link with the court. And it is a coincidence, to say the least, that this link is associated with someone you had dealings with. She could be a spy, or she may have a lover who's a spy. We have to find out. Lucy chimes in. I have told Sir Edward that I had no contact with this woman, Judith Pettigrew. It must be you, Henry, who investigates her. You must return to England. I give her a hard look. Does she want to get rid of me already? And I know that poor Mistress Pettigrew is no spy. I swear on my life that Judith Pettigrew is innocent, I protest. Hyde responds briskly. Then you must prove that, Henry. We cannot leave this. We urgently need to find the weak point in the network. I look angrily at Lucy. So I must return. But then she smiles at me. I also must return as I do not wish my continued absence to be remarked upon. We shall travel together. Hyde tells us that he will provide us with horses and an escort to Calais. We will travel as Henry and Lucy until we get to Calais. Then from Calais to Dover to London, we will again be the Skinner sisters, Araminta and Celia. 
So you see, we will be travelling as before. Lucy twinkles at me and I realise she is as pleased as I am. Then, foolishly, the thought of girl tugs at my heart. Not quite as we were before, I say. Lucy looks puzzled. Hyde barks at me. What do you mean, not as you were before? You have to travel in your previous identities. Any change might provoke suspicion. Lucy suddenly realises what I mean. Girl, she exclaims. We must have girl. Hyde is mystified and seeing this, she explains. We travelled with Henry's dog, girl. We can't leave him behind. Him? queries Hyde. Yes, he's called Girl, I answer. Hyde waves his hand in irritation. Don't explain. You can take the damned dog if you want. I don't care. Just come back to me with some answers. He takes a long drink of his wine, then reaches for another goblet from the cabinet behind him. Here, have some wine. He pours some wine for me from the, from the flagon. He gives me a wintry smile. This is unfortunate, but not a disaster. Do your best, Henry, with or without your dog. You should report back to me in person by the new year. Lucy and I will leave Paris in three days' time. I say goodbye to Anne Hyde, who says she is disappointed that I am leaving. But I suspect she is relieved that her liaison with Prince James can continue without the hindrance of having me around. I go to my room to pack. On my bed, neatly laid out, are my clothes as Henry and my sword. I start to undo the ribbons from my hair. I hear a peremptory knock on my door. I'm tempted not to answer, as I'm eager to leave as soon as possible. But the person outside knocks again, this time more loudly. I open the door, my hair loose around my shoulders. A tall young man stands there. I wonder if he's one of the lads I have danced with over the last few days. If he is, there's no sign of it. His face is hard and businesslike, not soft with lust. Lady Mary Hyde, he checks. That is me, I assent. He stands up straight, his hand on his sword, aware that in this situation he must be formal. I remember that my sword is on my bed, with my clothes, and keep the door just ajar. Fortunately, he doesn't want to come in. Come with me, please, he says. Why, where are we going? I'm unwilling. I cannot tell you, but we must go now. He stands there, impatiently clicking his heels. Can I just do my hair? I want to put my hair up again so that I look less dishevelled. My lady, we must go now. He is obdurate. Very well, I will come. I leave the room and lock the door behind me. Immediately, the young man starts to stride ahead of me. I am hampered by my skirts and scurry to keep up with him. What is your name? I ask. My name is Denzel, but it is not me that you will be meeting. He leads me along the corridor, past the public rooms, across the courtyard, 
and then into a small side door set in the wall. Who will I be meeting? I demand. We start to climb a small staircase that looks as if it was designed for for servants. You'll see, he says, almost running up the stairs in front of me. I pick up my skirts and follow him. We reach a door which he opens and ushers me in. We are in the entrance hall of a suite of rooms. On the wall, there is a painting of the dashing Henry IV, the previous French king and the father of Henrietta Maria. Gilded chairs stand on either side of the two closed doors, which I guess lead into the main apartment. Denzel pauses, faces me and puts his hand on my shoulders. What you will see and hear today, what you are told, must stay in your heart only. You must tell no one. Do you understand? Not your mother, not your lover, not even your dog. I laugh weakly. Does he know about girl? Probably not. He's just making a point. Denzel looks sternly at me. I am serious. Do you swear? I sense now is not the time for humour. On my life. He nods his head, but wants to make sure. If this should ever come out, I will know who is responsible. I promise it will not come out. My heart is pounding. I think I can guess who I am going to see. But surely not. What would he want with me? Another possibility occurs to me. Maybe darker forces are at work. How can I be sure that this meeting is not a trap? Does someone want to prevent me from returning to England? I have no time to think more. Denzel tells me to follow him as he knocks and then opens both doors. Then he turns and motions me inside. The room has large windows and the sunlight makes me blink. I notice that although it is very grand, there are spider's webs hanging from the candle holders. Dazzled by the light, I can just make out a figure sitting in front of one of the windows. I am aware of Denzel bowing deeply and I realise who the figure is. I lower my head, hold my skirts and dip down to the floor. A hand touches me on my shoulder and gently raises me up. No need for this, my lady. Come and sit with me. I sit and look at my king. He's very tall, dressed in black velvet, which is wearing a bit thin at the elbows. His dark face is thick set, his chin covered with stubble, but his black eyes are bright, examining me with an amused curiosity. Denzel, you may go, he says. I will call you if I need you. I do not wish to be disturbed. Your Majesty, Denzel bows and leaves the room. The King turns to me and smiles. His face, which in repose has been sad, becomes animated, almost handsome. So, Lady Mary Hyde, it is a pleasure to meet you. 
I hear you have been working for Sir Edward Hyde. I look him in the eyes. How much does he know about me? I have, Your Majesty. He's given me a couple of assignments. The King laughs. A warm, lazy laugh. <laughs> My lady, I believe he only gave you one assignment. The work in England was, I believe, carried out by Master Henry Nash. So he knows. I'm not ashamed. I speak frankly. Your Majesty, I am known as Henry Nash, although sometimes I am Mary Hyde. Or Henriette, the King asks. I realise Lucy must have told him about our time together. I'm annoyed, but there's nothing I can do. He is the King. I cannot hide anything from him. The Countess of Carlisle has told you about my time in England, I say stiffly. Yes, and she tells me you make a pretty boy. He looks me up and down and then frowns. But you're such a pretty girl. I cannot see you as a boy. I shrug my shoulders. It's easy enough once I have the clothes, I say. I can use a sword along with the best of men. I'm sure you can, Henriette. Nothing you can do would surprise me. But I cannot help myself from being intrigued. You seem fluid, able to change at will. It's the way I am, Your Majesty, and the way I had to be. Since my father died, I've had to support my mother, and so I have played a part that only a boy could play. I speak quietly. He leans forward, his gaze completely focused on me. That must have been difficult for you, I can tell. I know what it feels like to be a geyser. You and me, we have both had to be actors. I remember how his father's death had thrust so many troubles on him and how he had had to be one king for the Scottish Covenanters and another for the Irish Catholics and yet another for his French cousins. His eyes show me that he understands a little. I feel a warmth. I tell myself it is the sunshine, but that is only half true. Receiving the full light of the king's attention feels like being in front of an applewood fire. I feel relaxed and my limbs are heavy. I am close to him now and I can smell his cologne, rich and spicy. I feel as if I can say anything to him. And Lucy Carlyle, she is an actor, is she not? I challenge him. Ah, Lucy, yes, she is an actor, but it has never been forced on her like it has on you. His dark eyes are sympathetic. Suddenly he changes course. He springs up from his chair, leading me to jump up after him. Let us see your acting skills. Henriette, I challenge you to a duel. I answer him back. Your Majesty, you ban dueling from your court. He throws his head back and laughs. I notice that his figure is lithe and athletic. He must be a good swordsman, better than me. <laughs> you are quite right, Henriette. But let us try a few moves. You must promise me 
that you will not wound me. Remember, I am England. This sounds pretentious, but I realise he is serious. He knows that he is the embodiment of the state, whether he wills it so or no. As such, any act against him is an act of treason. He goes into an antechamber and returns with two swords. This is not fair. I'm in skirts. How can I match your freedom of movement? Very well. I shall have a handicap. We will allow that you have already scored five direct hits upon my person. He hands me one of the swords and takes the other for himself. He looks down at me and there is a wicked smile on his face. He brings the sword up to his face and kisses it. I notice that his lips are fleshy and red. En garde, he calls. I take my position. We stand facing each other, sideways, our knees bent, swords held upright. Suddenly he lunges forward, his sword flashing in the sun. I parry with my blade, but the king pushes it back. He forces my blade to the floor, then quickly touches my chest with the point. I feel it hard against the fabric of my gown, held so gently that it just touches, but does not enter. I am so aware that he is watching me intently. I shiver violently. He laughs and withdraws his sword. Again. We stand opposite each other and it starts. This time it takes longer and I win the point, holding my epée against his throat. He smiles that lazy smile. Remember, I am England. There I am with a sharp sword against a Stuart king's neck. It is too close for comfort. I withdraw the blade and again we are on guard. We continue. We are well matched. He is taller and stronger than I, but I am faster and more natural at the feint. After 30 minutes, we are equal on five hits each. He sheaths his sword. Let us call it a draw, Henriette. I can see that you are an expert and I would not risk losing to you. I feel brave, but you've lost already, Your Majesty. If you remember, you allowed me five direct hits. That would make my score ten, well ahead of Your Majesty. The King's eyes wrinkle with merriment. <laughs> I have been too gallant with you, Henriette, but no more. I have learnt my lesson. You underestimated me. Indeed I did, and therefore no need for politesse. He takes my sword away from me and puts it to one side. Then he takes my hand. His hand feels strong and warm. I rest mine in it for a moment, then withdraw it. He ushers me back to my chair. Henriette, we must talk. Will you have some wine? He goes to the sideboard and fills two goblets. Here you are. Again, our hands touch and he glances at me briefly. I am aware of the significance of that touch, both for him and for me. I did not say I wished for wine. I say tartly. My dear Henriette, indulge me. 
I am a king without a kingdom, an object of pity. But he is smiling. You're not in need of pity. I am short with him. But then I take a sip of wine. It is passable, but Lady Mountjoy's cellar is better. He takes a long draught and then sets the goblet on the table. I hold mine, cradling it next to my chest. He looks at me regretfully and then starts to speak. He tells me he knows that Lucy and I are going to England and that he is concerned that somewhere someone is passing information about the networks that support him. He tells me that he believes I am trustworthy and he asks me if his instinct is right. Yes, sire, I will not betray you. I promise. It sounds like a declaration of love. He is silent for a moment, his eyes on mine. I will not allow him to fluster me. I return his gaze, unashamed. He speaks again. Henriette, first of all, tell me about this pendant that my mother, the Queen, swears was part of the Royal Jewel Collection. I gather my thoughts and tell him the story of Judith Pettigrew. You see, sire, I'm good with women. I was sent to flirt with her, make her enjoy her life again, and then give something to your treasury. You are good with women? He looks very grave and takes my hand again. I would that you were good with men, Henriette. My breath is coming in short gasps. I have caught the king's eye and I am uncomfortable. I cannot be what I am not, I whisper. He leans forward and gently, gently kisses my forehead. I sit frozen to my chair. I am very conscious of the physicality of him, his maleness. For a moment, I want to move into his arms, but I hold back. He straightens himself and sits down again. We continue talking as before. Henriette, the fact that this woman had possession of the pendant is of concern to Sir Edward and to my mother, the Queen. Now you have told me about this woman, I agree with you. She is unlikely to be a spy, but it would be useful to know how she obtained the pendant before you leave her to get on with her life. Thank you, sire. I have no wish to bring trouble upon her. He replies quickly, honestly. Neither have I, Henriette. I have no wish to interfere with anyone leading a decent life. He continues, but this is painful to me. I believe the spy may be elsewhere in the network. Thomas Lewis, the Quaker? He shakes his head immediately. No, no, not him. He is a Quaker. Did I tell you a Quaker was one of those who brought me across the channel when I was a hunted man? These people are good people. If they oppose you, it would be to your face, not behind your back. So who? A servant? A tradesman? No, it cannot be one of those. They would not know enough. Henriette, I believe the spy 
is from a very great family, one of the oldest in England. He pauses for a moment and I cry out, but I know nobody of that background. He frowns, nobody except, he hazards. Suddenly I realise, nobody except Lucy Carlyle. No, I cannot believe it. She is devoted to you. She would not do anything to harm you. She does love me immoderately, he acknowledges. But you know as well as I that for Lucy, love does not mean loyalty. I shake my head angrily. Did you know, sire, when we were coming back to France, she did nothing but speak of you. She was obsessed by you. He laughs and cups my face in his hands. I heard you were very jealous, Henriette. I feel uncomfortable again. She had talked about me, this woman who I had loved, still loved. His face is close to mine. He is looking at me tenderly, as if I am very precious. I can see the dark hairs of his beard, smell expensive soap and clean linen. For a moment I feel that I could just lean forward and, and kiss him. But my heart is too full and my mind full of unwelcome thoughts. I pull back and he lets me go. Pity, he says, you are lovely. I understand why Lucy is so fond of you. She isn't fond of me. Tears start into my eyes. She wanted you. She didn't care that she's old enough to be your mother. He raises his eyebrows. Yours too, he comments. But that is the point about Lucy. She loves too well. When she meets someone who catches her eye, she cannot help herself. You know that she has had love affairs at court, all of which her husband excused. You will also know that in John Pym, she switched sides to a parliamentary lover. She has done that once. She can do it again. He leans over and brushes a tear away from my cheek with his hand. She does love you, Lucy. She is quite sincere. And she loves me, and God knows who else. So why do you entertain her, if she's a spy, an inconstant spy at that? He smiles sadly. I know she will not get hurt. And I know that I will not tell her what I do not want her to hear. But how can you be with someone and not care if they love another? I say it quietly. Henriette, you will learn. Next year, we could be dead. Or we could be dining at the Palace of Whitehall. Or we could be still hanging on the coattails of whichever European royal family will take us in. So what do we do? Do we cry because true love is not possible and keep ourselves like monks until our fortunes turn? Why is true love not possible, I ask. Many poor people without land or title fall in love. He twinkles at me. He has a smile that makes me want to smile back. Say I am a carpenter. 
he pours us both some more wine. And say you, for the sake of argument, are a grocer's daughter. Neither of us are wealthy, admitted, but we know our station in life. We know what is expected of us, where we will live, where we will work, and who we will marry. There is no uncertainty. Whereas I, if I were to ask you to be my wife, he pauses to check. That would be possible, would it not? Uh, Yes, indeed, it would be possible, but I've no idea why you bring it up. Well, you see, Henriette, next year you may be feasting next to me in London and all of my advisers will be telling me to divorce you so that I can make an advantageous royal match. Not that I would, of course, he adds kindly. Thanks very much. My voice is sour and waspish. But then, say, next year I may be dead on a battlefield and you would be left begging in Europe. My family would not welcome you and you would be lucky to receive a maid's pension. Or say next year we are still in the same place, only one year older and more bitter. Do you not understand, Henriette? In our lives, we cannot commit ourselves, even to those we love. And do you love anyone? I look him straight in his black eyes. A few. He takes a sip of his wine. Drink, Henriette. Please, I obey. The wine is no better than the first glass I had. I would have thought you would serve better wines than this, I say tartly. He leans back in his chair and laughs out loud. Henriette, everything you say makes me love you. No, the wine is from my mother's cellar. And for a French woman, she has terrible taste. I start laughing too. I've tasted better in a Puritan merchant's house and they weren't drinkers. Now I shall tell my mother that she has foiled my plan to seduce you simply by her choice of wine. Now, Henriette, I shall finish mine, but you do not need to. I shake my head. I'll manage, though it will be an effort. That's my loyal servant. Now, let me tell you what I want you to do. I want you to watch Lucy. See if she has any gallant hanging around. Is there anyone she is writing letters to? She only wrote letters to you, I point out. That is what she told you. Keep your eyes open, Henriette. How can I do that to her? She is my lover. He looks serious now. She would do it to you, Henriette, and she may do it to me. Don't worry, she will not be harmed in any way. I am not a vengeful man. All that would happen is that she would be cut off from our communications. I am doubtful. How can I believe that? He speaks softly and with great emphasis. Henriette. I am your king. If you are to work for me, you have to trust me. Lucy Walter trusted you, and look at her now. He flinches as if I'd hit him. Lucy Walter, 
She is well provided for. Yes, we were lovers, but we were very young. Henriette, when I ask you to trust me, it is not as a lover. It is as a king, and a king who will not let down his servants. I see. So not as a lover. Much as I am tempted, not as a lover. I feel a wash of relief but also just a smidgen of regret. He's undeniably attractive and pleasanter than most men. But from what I have seen, men spell trouble. It is surely better to work for a king and remain high in their esteem than be in their bed and be thrown out before the sheets have been changed. I get back to business. So you want me to spy on Lucy Carlyle? I can hardly believe I'm saying this. Yes, you are lovers, and I know you are a jealous little soul, so it will not seem strange. You will, of course, be checking out other members of that network and looking at the matter of the pendant. You will be busy, Henriette. He sits back in his chair, satisfied. But I am far from content. But, Your Majesty, you expect too much of me. I can't bring myself to betray Lucy. I can't do that to her. I stand up now, staring him in the face. For a moment he looks irritated, but then he holds up his hand. Henriette, listen to me. All you must do is watch. If you find nothing, then you say nothing to me about it. But think, if you find she is passing on information to a gallant... Should I not know? If you hid that, would you not be betraying me? You are a loyal servant, Henriette. You could not do that. I sit down, considering what he has said. So I will not have to report to you. Not on Lucy, unless you find something about her that I need to know. I will expect regular reports from you, on the other matters. And if I do find something on Lucy? Make an excuse to come back to France. Do not mention me. Lucy does not know that I have spoken with you, and she must not. I can hear the authority in his voice, and I know that he expects me to obey him. Very well, sire. I will do as you ask, I say and his face immediately softens and becomes relaxed. Then, a moment later, he looks immensely tired. Good man, I will expect to see you when you return. His eyes turn from me to the door. He has done his business with me, and now he wishes to play tennis, maybe, or go riding. I get up and curtsy to him. Goodbye, Your Majesty. Goodbye. And Godspeed, I will see you again, Henriette. He claps his hands loudly, and after a few moments, Denzel appears to show me out. I look at the king once more, this dark, tall man, with his ugly but charming face and the sadness in his eyes. Servant or lover, there will be no man that matters more to me than this one. I return to my room change into Henry's clothes and put on my sword belt and boots. It feels good to be out of corsets and I breathe deeply. 
I've been told to pack my women's clothes, as once Lucy Carlyle and I get to Calais, we will both be travelling under our assumed identities again. Of course, Lucy is meant to be at Penshurst Place, and so she cannot be seen to be in Dover. I muse about Araminta and Celia. Will Araminta still cleave to Celia as she did when we were coming over to France? Will she still tell me she loves me? I don't know if I want her to say that any more. Do I still love her? Of course I do. Do I trust her? Because of what I know, I can't. But then do I want to be in that relationship of trust with her anyway? For if I was, I would have to tell her everything. When we existed just for each other, I could hide nothing from her. I go to my mother's house. Again, she is not expecting me, and there is no food in the house. I tell her that I will go out to eat, but she will not have it. As if I see you every day. Of course we'll eat together. I shall go out and buy some eggs and bread. She bustles out of the door, carrying her basket, and soon she's back with twelve white duck eggs and a long loaf of bread. She tuts about the bread being stale. It has been baked ten hours ago at dawn. But she puts me to toast it by the hearth, where girl stirs and lazily licks my hands. My mother makes an omelette, watching a large knob of butter melt and foam in the pan. She adds the eggs, which she has beaten, some salt and a few leaves of parsley. She cooks it, moving the eggs around until the middle of the omelette is cooked. Then she cuts it in half and slides both halves onto a large trencher. I bring the toasted bread. We sit facing each other at the kitchen table. She remembers something, goes to the sideboard and brings out a dusty bottle of wine. Here, drink. She fills a large tankard for me and pours half as much for herself. No doubt you'll be telling me you're off again, she says accusingly. I am ashamed, but admit that my stay with her will only be for a couple of days. She points at Girl, curled up beside the fire. I hope you're taking him with you this time. He's been eating me out of house and home. Actually, I thought I might, I tell her. No need. He isn't that much of a bother. I thought so. Girl has wormed his way into her heart, as I had hoped. I have to tell her that I need him this time. Well, that's a first. What use to you is that stupid dog? Mother is back to her normal attitude. I think quickly. We may shoot birds. We need a dog to retrieve them. And who is we? I do not answer. My mother doesn't press it. You're not going to tell me, are you? Don't bother lying to me like you did last time. I know you weren't with Prince Rupert. He was far away in the Caribbean. You won't tell me the truth, will you? I avoid the question. I get up, kiss my mother on the top of her head and go upstairs to bed, followed by girl.